welcome to episode 30 of the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. In today's show, we had the pleasure of speaking with Steve Hennikoff, who studies chromosomes, chromatin dynamics, and epigenetics, and develops genomics and computational tools to facilitate this research. He received a BS at the University of Chicago and a PhD from Harvard University and did postdoctoral work at the University of Washington. Steve has been a faculty member of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center since 1981. He is also an investigator of the Harvard Hughes Medical Institute, an affiliate professor of genome sciences at the University of Washington, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, and co-editor-in-chief of the open access journal Epigenetics and Chromatin. In this episode, we're talking with Steve about his work, his approach to method development and refinement, and more, so let's jump right in. Steve, I would like to welcome you to the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Thanks, Anita. Thanks for having me here. Steve, to get started, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you're currently working on? Okay. When I was an undergraduate, I was at the University of Chicago. I majored chemistry. I knew I wanted to be a scientist, but it wasn't until I read Jim Watson's book, Molecular Biology of the Gene, that I realized what I wanted to do. This was the first edition of what later became a standard undergraduate textbook. But when it first came out in the 1960s, which is when I was an undergraduate, it was very exciting. Here was a brand new field that was rejuvenating traditional biology with the hope of really understanding uh, the blueprint for life. I, I guess what I'm working on now is the same thing that got me excited about biology as an undergraduate back then, the molecular biology of the gene. For example, we're still very uncertain about some of the basic features of gene expression, such as how does a regulatory protein find its site on DNA, or how is a transcriptional program remembered through replication and through mitosis. Also, I'm at a Cancer Research Center where we're struggling with the question of how chromatin is deregulated in cancer and what we might do about it. These were questions out there more than 50 years ago in, in Watson's book. Now, for graduate school, I went to Harvard in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. It was an exciting place at the time in the 1970s. And I worked for Matt Messelson, where we did some of the early work on heat shock in the fruit fly Drosophila. I was especially intrigued by genome organizations, questions such as, why is DNA tandemly repetitive around centromeres, satellite DNA? This was a problem that Matt got me interested in. And I continued uh, this interest for my postdoctoral work in Seattle with Charles Laird at the University of Washington. And there I took on the fascinating, but at the time very obscure problem of position effect variegation in Drosophila, silencing of a gene when it's juxtaposed to heterochromatin, that's the repetitive DNA, uh, typically around centromeres. And this got me hooked on what's been my long-term interest in chromatin and epigenetics. I also began a side project in Ben Hall's lab that led me to clone the first heterologous gene in yeast by genetic complementation, uh, flypurine pathway gene. And this set the stage for my dual interest in both epigenetics and genomics methods development. And in 1981, I landed my dream job at the Fred Hutch, where I've been ever since. And I think we first met at a Human Cell Atlas meeting, actually. I think it was probably not this year, last year, or the year before last year. But I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about what the Human Cell Atlas is about? And also, how is your team involved with that? Sure. The Human Cell Atlas is a project to create reference maps of each distinct 
cell type in human beings. So this would be the cell biology equivalent of the Human Genome Project, which is, of course, has created an enormously useful reference map for genetics for the past 20 years. The goal of the Human Cell Atlas would be to do more or less the same for cell and developmental biology. Now, as to our current involvement, it's as a seed network, uh, one aimed at developing genomic tools, especially single cell tools that can be applied by many other teams working on particular cell types of organs. And we've been generously supported by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative to do this. And for us, uh, Protocols IO, which you and Lenny introduced me to maybe at a meeting some time ago, has been a central resource. This is because getting something to work in one's own lab or using one's own software pipeline is likely to be challenging for other teams on the project to reproduce. And one thing I I should mention, it's absolutely critical for this project, for any large-scale geographically diverse project, that people doing the same procedure are following the same protocol, because otherwise it might not be possible to usefully stitch together the parts to make for a true reference map for the human organism. And this is much like the challenge that was faced by the NIH ENCODE project. I was part of the Mod ENCODE project, and I got to understand that you needed to follow strict protocols shared by all the groups generating the data in order to create a useful infrastructure. Now, this was difficult even for ENCODE, but the Human Cell Atlas is aiming for single cell genomics and imaging. And in both cases, there's been rapid technological progress, and this makes it hard to settle on a single protocol. Some single cell technologies are stabilizing, such as single cell RNA-seq and single cell attack-seq. But my own team's technologies, which we refer to as cut and run and cut and tag, although they're stable at the bulk label level, they're, they're still being developed by us and others for single, at the single cell level. So it's a moving target, and it's important that you settle on particular protocols, particular methods, in order that you can stitch together the work from many labs contributing to the Human Cell Atlas. Very cool. And so my next question is a question that I always ask on this podcast, and it's, did you ever experience a minor tweak major impact moment in your research, and maybe even a minor tweak major impact moment with the cut and run and cut and tack methods? And what that means really is, was there ever like a little tweak that maybe was responsible for the method just not working for somebody or anything like that? Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. As for cut and run, cut and tag, there have been so many minor tweaks. Uh, A week or so ago, Postdoc Lab called me up on my cell phone late at night asking what I thought of a crazy idea that came up in a discussion in the lab. And I had to agree with him that it was a crazy idea and it was unlikely to work, but it would be such a minor tweak so simple that he tried it anyway. And (laughs) it looks as if it worked. Can't really tell you much about it because much too early to know whether it's really this is something that'll have a major impact or it's going to work in the long run. And that's typical of these things when you're working on methods. You think that you had a minor tweak turned into major impact, but it fizzles out. So I don't know about that. It's too soon to say. But let me tell you about what I, I knew you'd ask this question. I was thinking about it quite a bit. And I think The most interesting minor tweak is one that had an effect on everything I've been doing uh, since this occurred, and that's it got me into computational biology. So during the 1980s, with DNA sequencing just taking off, 
nearly all the newly positive sequences began to be DNA sequences, not protein sequences, as had been in the past. And so the DNA sequences went to GenBank. And then to get the translations of the open reading frames for those DNA sequences, it required an annotator at GenBank to put the open reading frame translations into the protein database. And not everything got in, and what was there was slow in getting in. But I realized from an earlier experience that finding a hit in the protein database could be make or break for a project, for a career, in fact. And so I began searching GenBank for homologies by six-frame translation. Now, it's really a minor tweak, but uh, nobody doing it th- was doing it at the time, and it actually had a major impact. So I, I began doing this mostly as a hobby, using my home computer, loading GenBank onto hard drive from a bunch of, of floppy disks. It was great fun. I I made a number of unexpected discoveries. Some of them led to publications. Uh, One was the description of the Lysar family of bacterial transcription factors in the late 1980s. But it was clear back then that we needed better tools for searching distant homologies. I partnered with my wife, Georgia, who had extensive software engineering expertise. And decades later, Georgia and I are still working together in the same way. So this has had a major impact. We came up with an automated algorithm that took lists of manually curated sequence relationships. This was the ProSite database that was curated by Amos Barak. And we turned each list into a string of ungapped homology blocks, which we called the Blocks database. And we just did this fully automatically. And then searching the database of blocks could discover homologies more sensitively than searching single sequence databanks, such as using BLAST on the NCBI server. Back in those days, there wasn't the field of computational biology was very, very small. You could fit pretty much everyone in a room. In fact, at a three-week summer workshop called Finding Genes at the Aspen Center for Physics, we described this work. And somebody, I think it was Temple Smith, pointed out to us that we could use our database of blocks to come up with a set of scores for sequence alignment and searching. And if you don't know what I mean by that, it's a 20 by 20 substitution matrix with different score for each different amino acid match and mismatch. Now, at the time, the dominant set of scores, substitution scores, were based on mathematical extrapolation from closely related sequences introduced many years earlier by Margaret Dayhoff, PAM matrix series. And we realized that our homology blocks could potentially provide better scores since both close and distant relationships were represented and that obviated the need for extrapolation. Uh, We found that our scores, which we termed the Blossom Block Substitution Matrix series, work better than PAM in searches and alignments. And one of the matrices in our series, the Blossom 62 matrix, immediately became the default for BLAST, and and still is, by the way, and our Blossom series is still the defaults for most searching and alignment programs. So this little tweak turned out to have really important consequences. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And so we already mentioned a little bit that methods always can be refined or there's things you can tweak around and things like that. And usually methods can always be improved over time. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to really refine methods and how you might also ensure or increase even their reproducibility? Yes. And this is actually something I learned from developing the Blossom substitution matrices was the importance of fair benchmarking of any new method. Now, this is easy when the tool is just a set of 210 numbers that can be tested in an even-handed manner. And later, we did a lot of benchmarking when we were trying to 
test out different ideas, computational ideas. A few of them perform well, and they were adopted uh, by NCBI and, and Cyblast. It's, of course, much more difficult to do even-handed benchmarking on experimental methods than on a set of numbers, but it's something uh, to look for if you're thinking of switching to something new. Uh, has it been benchmarked against the current state of the art? And this is something that we're still doing as in order to decide whether it's worth going on with something. So that's, I think, the most important thing. As for reproducibility, Particles I.O. has really helped us with that. We get a lot of questions and suggestions in the comment box, and this helps us improve our methods. So some of the questions stem from not understanding the reason for doing such and such, and this helps us clarify the protocol for the next version. In some cases, it's to ask ourselves why we're doing something that might be unnecessary, and uh, this can lead to simplification of the protocol. And then uh, the best comments are feedback from users who've tried it and didn't come out as expected. And then we have to do some troubleshooting. And we've done this quite a bit. And this can give us ideas as to how we might improve the method in an important way. So for example, a simplification of our cut and tag method made it possible to perform steps with minimal equipment, even making it possible to perform it because we were able to simplify it down, do it at home. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think I saw your cut and tag at home. And I was also wondering about that. Did you develop that specifically for the COVID-19 pandemic so people can use it at home? And how in general was actually the pandemic influencing your work? Yeah, that was part of it, but that was just the timing of it. Let me put it this way, although COVID pandemic's terrible, it came at the right time for this little tweak here. So Let me give you a little background because people are listening. I should explain what I mean by cut and tag. It's our most recent method for in-situ chromatin profiling. So most people who are mapping DNA binding proteins are familiar with chromatin immunoprecipitation in which chromatin, this is a DNA protein that makes up our genome, is fragmented to solubilize. Then an antibody is added to pull down the fragments that the antibody is bound to. And the basic method has been around since the mid-1980s. So most people are doing science in, in this area have grown up with it. And ChIP-seq has been around for well over a decade. And in this, the antibody-bound fragments are sequenced and mapped to the genome. ChIP-seq's been used in about 10,000 publications last year, and it continues to dominate the field. In fact, it's become synonymous with chromatin profiling for many people. However, there's an alternative strategy. It's what I call enzyme tethering. And an early version of this was what we call DMID, which Boss Van Steensel developed 20 years ago when he was a postdoc in the lab. Now, this is different. It's an in situ strategy in which the cells or nuclei remain intact throughout. So there's no solubilization of the entire cellular contents as occurs in CHIP. And the chromatin protein of interest is targeted. In the case of the MID, it was by a DNA methyltransferase. Now, a few years later, Uli Lemley's group at University of Geneva introduced what he called a check and cheek which beginning over a decade later, we developed for a sequencing readout. In, in these methods, a nuclease is tethered to the targeted chromatin protein, either directly or via an antibody. So this is an in-situ method. There's no solubilization or anything. And our version of this, which we call cleavage under targets and release using nuclease or cut and run, has uh, gained in popularity because compared to chip-seq, backgrounds are much lower, 
It requires much lower sequencing depth, and this reduces cost by an order of magnitude or more. And also because it's good for low cell numbers and also because it provides base pair resolution, we and others have put cut and run to good use for precisely mapping chromatin protein. But of course, there's this large inertia people still doing CHIP-seq that still dominates, and there are not all that many people doing cut and run compared to the vast majority of people still doing CHIP-seq. Now, last year, we introduced a further advance. So we substituted a cut and paste transposase for the nuclease. In this way, sequencing adapters, which you need in order to do Illumina sequencing, sequencing adapters are added to the antibody-targeted fragments, what's been called tagmentation, and this eliminates the need for making libraries. So it greatly simplifies the process, makes it cheaper, much easier to do. Now, cut and tag has become very popular, and in fact, we our Protocols.io site, cut and tag, has received even more hits than cut and run, which both of which are highly popular. And even though we introduced it only Last year, papers are beginning to appear only a a year after introducing the method, so it works pretty well. So just as we're doing the benchmarking on a simplified protocol in which all the steps from nuclei to purified libraries can be performed in a single PCR tube, that's when the COVID pandemic hit. So we already had the method working, but we still were doing the benchmarking, and I needed to shut down the lab because of the pandemic, but I realized that, oh, I could set the whole thing up on part of a counter in our laundry room at home. And since mid-March, I've been doing that. In fact, I did an experiment yesterday. It's very convenient. Now, the intention was to get the work done during the pandemic, but what Cut and Run at Home, I think, also did well was to illustrate how anyone with the need to perform chromatin profiling can do it cheaply and efficiently without requiring a big lab with fancy equipment, major funding to get data quality that's orders of magnitude cheaper and better than what the big projects still doing ChIP-seq are getting. So it's an enabling method for lots of labs. So to get the story out, we put up the streamlined protocol, cut and tag direct, we call it, on Protocols.io. But at the same time, we posted a preprint on BioArchive describing and showing the data. Everything was updated at home with links between the protocol and back. So you could read the paper on BioArchive. You can then go to the protocol and say, oh, yeah, that's how to do it. You can ask questions about it. And then we had an advance to the protocol that we put in as both Protocols IO is a new protocol, and we updated the BioArchive preprint. And in fact, the latest version includes a way that Contag users can get chromatin accessibility maps. And this version we then submitted to a journal, and it was recently published in eLife, where all the data in the paper came from experiments performed in my laundry room. The point here is that chromatin profiling for all labs, big and small, is within reach. That is so cool. And I'll be sure to link out to the preprint, the paper, and the protocols in the show notes. So if anybody wants to check them out, you can find the links there. So yeah, your team, and you definitely have a lot of experience developing genomic and computational tools. And I was just wondering, what are like your big learnings from developing new tools? And what advice do you have for anyone who's working on developing new tools? I guess I I can think of three things. First, you should ask yourself, is the method needed? Because sometimes you do a deep dive in the literature and it'll get you what you need to address whatever particular biological problem that you're interested in. Second, I would say go for low-hanging fruit. 
For example, pick up on a proven method, adapting it for your different application. In fact, putting together two methods is a good way to go. For example, about over a decade ago, we introduced something we called Catch-It. I don't remember what the acronym stands for, but it's a method that was an application of click chemistry, which had only recently been introduced into our salt fractionation chromatin profiling method, and it allowed us to map nucleosome turnover by metabolic labeling. So a low-hanging fruit that's crucial to do first, you can work out the, the details later. But just get the proof of concept. So that's my third thought. To go from a new idea to a new tool takes a lot longer than you might think. And once you've invested effort into a method, it can be hard just to drop it. And that's where lab meetings help a lot, where presenting your successes and failures to your lab mates can set you straight on it. So these are the things that, that I'd recommend. And of course, this isn't for everybody to develop methods. And you have to have some skill at it. And, and you also have to enjoy doing it. And I think this depends a lot on what the method is, but how long does it usually take to develop a new method? Or like, what's the, the range? Depends how new. I'm, I'm trying to think back to the catch-it method that I just mentioned. This was something that was on the back burner that we'd been thinking about. And that thinking about it probably went for a year or two. And then a postdoc in the lab, Roger Deal, came by and said, I've got some time on my project is there anything I can do? I said, oh, Roger, why don't you just do this? And it worked right away. So <laughs> it was mostly a matter of just, it, it was something that you think about for a long time. And then it just takes the guts, somebody like Roger to sit down and actually put it to practice. And it just worked right away. And that's often the case. And if you get stuck onto something that it goes on and on, and you're probably better off dropping it. So I think you already developed a lot of tools, but my last question always on this show is if you were allowed to make a wish for a tool that might not exist yet, that would make the life of researchers easier and work more efficient, what would that be? Yeah, there are tools that are feasible, and then there are uh, tools that are, wouldn't that be great, but they'll probably never happen. So let me just stick with a feasible tool, I think is feasible. So Cut and Tag does a good job with single cells, and we've adapted it for three different platforms, uh, robotic dispensing on a chip, uh, droplets, and split pooling. And we also find that we can permeabilize whole mounts, at least of small tissues, such as developing fly imaginal discs. However, with whole mounts, we end up losing spatial information when we break up the tissue for single cell device. What we could use is some kind of imaging device that registers the position of each cell and nucleus, and then we could computationally put Hupti Dupti back together again. So I think that the technology for this is not too far off, although making it practical and scalable will be a challenge. And that's what I'm looking forward to. That would be great to have. Steve, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners today? Well, there's one thing I think, and that is the satisfaction comes from developing uh, tools that can be widely adopted and not something that just you only you can do. And that means tools that are easy, robust, and cheap. Now, genomics tends to be associated with big science, big projects, big data, but this also leads to a lot of inertia. And the small lab science is much better poised to take advantage of new technological advances. So I think that the do-it-yourself science, like what I've just been describing, uh, is the most fun. That's cool. Steve, thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing your stories and insights on the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. 
Thank you, Anita. It's been my pleasure. This is your host, Anita, and we look forward to being with you for our next episode. This program was produced by H Media. We'll see you soon.